This is The Cable. Big bid on 10-year treasuries over the last week. Tech story is front and centre. A lot of people saying, no thank you, step back. You're saying, get in, why? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. The dollar a little bit stronger today. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable. An historic moment from which there can be no turning back. With Jonathan Ferro and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. Good afternoon, good afternoon to the City of London. I'm Jonathan Ferro. You are listening to The Cable live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio. This is Bloomberg Radio. It has just gone 5pm in the city alongside Guy Johnson. I'm Jonathan Ferro. Guy Johnson, this equity market taken a dive in the last couple of hours. Can you tell me why? No idea. Nor I. I'm, I'm genuinely perplexed as to the, the speed of the move to the downside uh, and what ultimately appears to be the catalyst behind it. I really am struggling to put my finger on it. If anybody knows out there, please ping me a note. I'd be absolutely delighted to hear from you. Um, it, it may be coronavirus-related. I don't know. I but, but clearly, the market may be, John, feeling a little bit more jittery than maybe we first imagined. Well, the Global Times putting out a piece in the last hour or so, last couple of hours, I think, Guy, which a lot of people are pointing to, about a spread of the virus in a Beijing Hospital. I'm not sure how much weight we should put at that at this point. Don't know. We don't have our reporting here at Bloomberg, but certainly not good at all. There's, there's rumours floating around about Iran and potentially that being the reason for this. I, I simply do not know. I'm not willing uh, to pin the nail on the donkey at this stage. I have no clue as to, to, to where ultimately it is. Um, really hard. But, but, but given all of this news flow, it, it is very important that we talk to Charlie Pellet now to tell us what exactly is going on. So let's do that. Charlie right, thank you very much. And here's what's going on. Boris Johnson facing growing criticism of his handling of weeks of flooding in England and Wales with rain forecast over the weekend threatening to bring more damage and disruption. During a visit to flood-hit areas of Wales today, opposition Labour Party leader Jeremy Corbyn criticized the Prime Minister for failing to convene the government's emergency committee known as COBRA. Conservative Member of Parliament Craig Whitaker, who represents one of the worst-hit constituencies he said, quote, he was furious over the slow response, while the fire brigades, brigades union accused Johnson of showing zero leadership. The head of the World Health Organization is calling for nations around the globe to boost funding to fight the coronavirus. While the outbreak is still mostly confined to China, also the airline industry forecasts the first annual decline in global passenger demand in 17 years. On the UK economy, the Confederation of British Industry says... British manufacturers are starting to become more upbeat about the outlook, according to CBI, which says total and export order books improved to their strongest positions in six months. Exports now in line with their long-run average. That is the latest from the news desk. Jonathan Farrell, back to you now here in New York. Charlie Pellet, thank you very much, sir. Always great to catch up with you. Fight night in Vegas. That was the debate stage in Nevada as the Democratic hopefuls took to the stage, hoping to secure the nomination from the party to take on Donald Trump this November. Guy Johnson, absolutely fascinating. The founder majority owner of Bloomberg LP, the parent company of Bloomberg News, Mr. Michael Bloomberg, his first outing. And wow, he took it from all sides. He did. And in some ways, the most kind of fascinating takeaway from that was was not the effect that it had uh, on Mike Bloomberg, but was the effect that it had, I think, on Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders is at the moment the favourite to become 
the Democratic nominee to take on Donald Trump in November. Yet he was barely paid any attention to by any of the other candidates. Uh, Mike Bloomberg landed one line on him, but there weren't many that stuck uh, last night. And in some ways, it just gives Sanders even more momentum. We're going into Nevada, then we go into South Carolina, then we go into Super Tuesday. And at the moment, if you look at Nate Silver's numbers, Sanders is on track to potentially take 40 to 50 percent of the delegates out of Super Tuesday, which is going to make him very, very difficult to catch. The market hasn't got this one priced in yet. Yeah, at the moment, the issue for many of the Democrats who are hoping for a moderate is that of all six of them go into Super Tuesday, it has advantaged Senator Sanders. I was watching this play out last night, and it didn't take too long for me just to conclude that as these guys tear each other apart, there is one person that's super happy. He's sitting in the White House with a massive smile watching this play out. It's President Donald Trump. This is a gift that keeps giving so long as they all hang around and fight it out with each other. And whoever ultimately emerges will be a wounded party and therefore ultimately more therefore likely to be able to be defeated by Donald Trump. And I wonder whether or not that is, that's the kind of the ultimate takeaway here, that the market doesn't believe that Sanders could beat Trump and therefore even if he is ahead that pricing in that risk is something that isn't necessarily something that needs to be taken that seriously. Look, the ultimate hedge, the ultimate backstop is that flipping the Senate is going to be really, really tough. And flipping the Senate with a self-proclaimed Democratic Socialist on the ticket for president for the party is probably going to make it a whole lot harder. Look, my take, Guy, going forward from here is that at some point you do have to start thinking about Senator Sanders, that we shouldn't underestimate the bandwidth the president has in the executive branch to do certain things on things like trade, on things like regulation, things that I think um, some people in this market might be increasingly uncomfortable with. I go back to what you said, which I think is a valid point, and analysts at KPW have also made this point, that for the market at the moment, they either don't see him as a viable candidate in Senator Sanders to get the nomination, or they don't see him as a viable candidate to beat Donald Trump, or if he beats Donald Trump, they don't see him as a viable enough candidate to actually get his policies through Congress and reverse some of the big tax cuts. As I say, and I go back to this guy, I think the ultimate ultimate backstop for this market is that the rate cuts don't get undone because it's going to be really difficult to the the corporate tax cuts rather don't get undone because it's going to be really difficult to flip the senate but it doesn't mean that you don't get a disruption in this market from someone who wants to do a lot more things with trade and a lot more with regulation it becomes it's not a zero chance that sanders is victorious And I appreciate what you say about the Senate, but nevertheless, there are things that he could do which are going to be less market friendly than President Donald Trump. And and I think that is something that needs to be brought in mind. But I think you raise a really good point about the fact that what does the second term of Donald Trump actually look like? We have spent most of the first term talking about trade. We're not doing it that we're not talking about that right now. We're talking about coronavirus. But we've still got phase two to get through. And an emboldened President Trump, you would have thought, would go on the offensive at some point. We always say that his policies are fluid. And I imagine that's going to be um, the case when we go into this election in November. As things stand at the moment, it's been interesting looking at him make make the following claim that we're open for business and <laughs> push back against officials within his administration that use national security as an excuse to put up protectionist trade barriers. I have no idea if that's something that has any longevity, a position that's sustainable beyond the election in November. I, I, but it would yeah. be interesting if that is a change of heart for the next four years if he does indeed get a second term. Everything, everything is about the election now. 
I, I, I don't think you can actually realistically extrapolate beyond it from from what you hear about Trump. Everything is now geared towards making sure that he gets reelected. It was fascinating to see uh, him taking a trip down to Phoenix. Um, Arizona is now a state that is in play. It's fascinating to have seen him kind of as the debates have taken place he wants he, his proximity is actually reasonably close but no, but but uh, but Arizona is now back in play um, and as a result of which he's kind of he's looking at some key battleground states that weren't battleground states last time round and taking them very very seriously everything seems to be geared towards it, um, it it's it's I, I I just think the the Democrats are finding themselves in a in an increasingly precarious position as as they spend more and talk more time battling themselves rather than battling him. Well, something the Bloomberg campaign have been making the point of saying again and again and again and repeatedly is that the President of the United States is running a national campaign. He has been for the last three years. And what the Bloomberg campaign has tried to do is try to match that and not get bogged down in places like Iowa and New Hampshire, which to some reason, to some degree, is why they skipped both of them. But by the time we get to Super Tuesday and Mayor Bloomberg is on the ballot... Senator Santos might already be flying. Next up on this programme, we're going to turn to the world of European banking and turn to a good friend of this programme. He's been out of action for a while for medical reasons with a bit of an operation. And I'm pleased to say he's back fit and well. It's Michael Houston. He's back with us next on this programme. This is Bloomberg Radio. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. It is all change in European banking. Wow, what a day it has been. So let's kick off with the early news, uh, and that is that ING's CEO is departing and he's heading off to UBS to replace Sergio Almosi. Ralph Hammers, uh, Hammers uh, leaving ING. And then another piece of fascinating news developing uh, a little later on this evening. This is a Bloomberg scoop. Uh, it looks like J.P. Moustier uh, over at Unicredit is a front runner to become the new CEO of HSBC. He's not the only kind of runner and rider, uh, but he's increasingly uh, becoming a front runner. Is this a prelude to maybe bigger changes within European banking? Michael Houston, Chief Market Analyst with CMC Markets, back joining us here in London. Michael, all change when it comes to the C-suite. Do you think this is a story of uh, something uh, that is gathering momentum in Europe that potentially could deliver some of those big M&A stories that we've been so long waiting for? Um, I'm not sure about that guy, really. I mean, when I look at Mr. Amotti, he's been there a long time. UBS share price has been in decline for about three or four years now. And I think maybe they decided that, um, given that Credit Suisse has just changed its CEO, Maybe it was a good time for Mr. Amotti to step aside and for a new broom to um, take the hot seat. And Mr. Hamers has been fairly successful in turning ING round into a much more digitally focused bank. The big question I would have about Mr. Hamers is, is whether he's a good fit for UBS, because ultimately UBS is a very different type of bank to ING. And in terms of Mr. Mustier and Unicredit and the fact that he's in the hot seat for the HSBC. What's wrong with Noel Quinn? Yeah. What's wrong with him? It does but, seem as if UBS, sorry, HSBC thinks that... I'm very confused maybe he's not by the, 100%. HS, the HSBC situation, Guy, aren't you? I'm totally confused by yeah, what's Yeah, why would you there. let a guy who's a temporary 
Uh, make all the changes that he's going to make. It's just bizarre. Isn't that weird, Mike? I can't get my head around the whole situation. Who's running the show there, the chairman? (sighs) Lord knows. I mean, it seems to me that if you've got someone who's who's in a position to wield the axe that Mr Flint wasn't prepared to do, let him do the job, give him the job. If he fails, then get rid of him. But, you know, take away the sword of Damocles of interim CEO. Give him plausible responsibility for the role that you want him to do. Otherwise, it just strikes me is that ultimately you're indecisive about the direction that you're taking the bank and that really you don't have a clue um, as to the the long-term direction of the bank. You know, put Noel Quinn in charge and basically let him drive the direction. Are you going to focus on Asia? And if you are, give him responsibility for it. Do you think, do you think, Noel Quinn, the, the, the share price reaction to the 35,000 job cuts and the restructuring package was not good. Do you think that undermined his credibility? I think it undermined the message guy. Because ultimately, I think if you're sending a message to the markets that you're serious about turning the bank around, but you don't give the person who's responsible for that policy the um, vote of confidence, if you like, I, you know, I sort of, I, I sort of draw a comparison with the football manager being given the vote of confidence by the board. You know, I mean, he hasn't been in the job that long. Um, in terms of how long he's been in the role, he really hasn't been given that much of um, rope to hang himself with. If you really think he's the person for the role, you know, give him the rope and allow him to do what you want him to do. Um, for me, the message is confusing. Michael Hewson, can I just say it's great to have you back in the seat. Welcome back to work. It's nice to be back, John. How are you feeling? Uh, a bit sore. I'm going to have a few weeks of very painful physiotherapy. But hopefully um, within about the next um, you know, sort of two to three months, I'll be back fighting fit again and well, be able to play golf. Wishing you the best Ooh. and I look forward to you being back fighting fit and playing golf again. We'll have to get good you back ti- on a programme. Good, good timing for the spring, I think. Indeed. That was yeah. why I decided to have the op. Get into, get into it slowly. Yep. Nice little walk around a golf course in the spring. Very, very nice. Something to look forward to for Michael Houston. Um, what are we looking forward to? We're going to hear from Axel Weber. He is the chairman of UBS. Why did he make the surprise decision to bring Ralph Harmers in uh, from ING to replace Sergio Amos? He caught a lot of people on the hop. Uh, we'll hear from Axel Weber next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. This is The Cable live across the capital on DAP Digital Radio. You are listening to Bloomberg Radio alongside Guy Johnson. I'm Jonathan Farrow. Turning to the musical chairs in the world of European banking now, Axel Weber, chairman at UBS, caught out with Bloomberg's Tom Keen and Francine Lacqua a little bit earlier today, discussing the selection of ING CEO Ralph Hammers as the firm's new chief executive officer. Well, look, he's an experienced CEO of a global systemic bank just like UBS. There's a league of table, the prime league of, ta- of banks, and he has been leading one of those banks for seven years successfully in very difficult and challenging market environments. He knows how to interact with regulators globally. He knows global regulation. And as a CEO, he knows banking strategy. He knows digital. So I think he brings a lot to the table. We're very honored to have him join us. And, you know, let me also say Sergio Amati has been a fantastic CEO 
for nine years, one of the longest-serving CEOs in European banking. So we're very happy that Sergio led the bank's transformation, and we worked together well during the period. We had a very good understanding. I really appreciated his leadership as a CEO. And now it's time for the next chapter at UBS, and that chapter will be written by, uh, by, by Ralph Hammers. Um, Axel Weber, did UBS actually need regulatory approval uh, given ING's money laundering issues? Absolutely. In Switzerland, before a CEO can be announced, uh, FINMA, our local regulator, does interviews, reaches out to regulators in the home constituency of many of these banks. We've done our own due diligence process, including legal counsel, both in Switzerland and uh, in, in, in the Netherlands. Uh, we've taken uh, into account publicly available information. And, of course, in the end, uh, we build our decision on some reassurances that, you know, this was an e a chapter that ING brought behind itself. The CEO itself has led that <coughs> transformation. He has led the settlement with authorities. And let me remind you that one of the first tasks of Sergio myself at UBS was to settle similar issues with law enforcement and with regulators around the globe. And sometime as a global chairman or CEO of a bank, you just have to close some of these chapters that you find at a bank. And there was no personal culpability of him that any of the investigations indicated. So we feel pretty confident that we've gone through a due diligence process that was aided by the judgment of regulators based on public information available and based on more details than we would see outside in mm -hmm. as regulators that were close to this case. I mean, what do you want his priorities to be? If you look at Ralph Heimers, he's really known for pushing the digital banking side. What he hasn't done before is, of course, has, he has limited experience in wealth management and investment bank, which is your core business. So where will he take the bank in the next four to five years? Well, so we hired a new CEO, and the transition will be very orderly. It will work out over the entire year. Charger will be in, uh, Sergio will be in charge of uh, the bank until November. Uh, and uh, Ralph will join us uh, in September. There will be an orderly handover. He's going to be the next CEO. Uh, he has to lead the bank and design strategy. We have very capable leaders. Actually, more than half the executive board has been turned over under Sergio's leadership. We have fantastic wealth management people. Uh, Tom Naratil and Iqbal Khan are the prime global executives in wealth management, and they will continue to lead that business. Uh, with Piero and Rob, we have two outstanding leaders of the investment bank, SUNY Hartford, a very talented person that leads our asset management. So all of the divisions we run, right. including uh, our operations, which uh, Sabine Kelabuse does, has fantastic leaders. Ralph will supplement the team and lead that team in the future. So I think we are well balanced with the people we have, and I expect the team to work together. I expect the team to take UBS to the next level, and that's clearly the mission that he has. Uh, Dr. Weber, all of this is wonderful, but you mentioned the word before, the dreaded T-word technology. Now, Mr. Hammers has a degree in operations research. Clearly at ING, he was very supple with the deployment of capital to technology. Is your bank under pressure to keep up with the American banks on the deployment of capital to technology? I think of J.P. Morgan and what they've done with technology. Are you under pressure to keep that investment going and to do it better under his tenure? No, absolutely. We're not under pressure, but it's an investment of first choice. 
for every European bank to digitalize its business, to take technology to the next level. The banking business, and I've had many discussions with Ralph and Sergio and many leaders at the global level, banking is changing dramatically. Now, the first signs where you see technology take over is in retail banking. But we're the largest and only global wealth manager. Right. Wealth management is becoming more and more a platform business. So investments in technology will be client enabling rather than be seen as something that you're forced to do. If you don't do it and you don't embrace it and you don't do it with full conviction, you've already failed. You're listening to Axel Weber, the UBS chairman, sitting down with Bloomberg's Tom Keane and Francine Lacroix after another series of changes at the top of a European bank. It does feel like musical chairs at the moment, guys. A little bit crazy. We've got Tijan TM from Credit Suisse heading for the exit, gone. Now we've yep. got UBS with a change there, which I have to say was somewhat unexpected in the last couple of months. I don't think anyone expected it to happen this quickly if they did indeed expect it to happen at all. Jess Daly over at Barclays, under a little bit of pressure. No idea what happens there at the top of that bank. Looking for some clarity over a range of issues there. But just seems that a lot of people moving around, Guy, and various banks in Europe still struggling for stability. Yeah, and this certainly is not going to help. the The only positive I could maybe take away from it is that it will provide maybe a different perspective on some of the problems that, that Europe faces. I, ING has managed to make money with negative rates, um, but it's been a tough battle. Uh, going to Switzerland, where rates are even more negative, that battle is going to become even greater. But does it provide the potential with some of these movements maybe to provide the uh, the opportunity for bigger changes to take place? Europe desperately, desperately needs some banking consolidation. We've seen a little bit in Italy over the uh, the last week or so, but there needs to be much, much more of it. Uh, and maybe a little bit of this movement will provide some, um, some opportunity to make that happen. But we've heard that all before. It still hasn't happened. Uh, and, and we need to uh, we need to maybe provide a, a greater crack catalyst. Maybe a crisis uh, would be necessary to make that ultimately happen. Um, we're going to carry on the conversation. We're actually going to hear from James Gorman in the next uh, half as well. That E-Trade transaction, fascinating in the financial sector today. Plus, we're going to talk about what's happening in these markets. That'll, that's all coming up. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio in the London area and around the world on all of your Bloomberg devices. John Ferris in New York. I'm Guy Johnson joining you here in London. The FTSE 100 closing down by two-tenths of 1%. Uh, we did see some weakness in the British pound in the latter parts of today's session. Um, this despite actually some early strengths generated uh, by the uh, the better retail sales number. We did actually end uh, the European kind of day, 4.30 in London, uh, with the FTSE down. Um, only a touch, but the pound down quite a lot with the 128 handle now. Uh, over in the United States, we're at session lows. The S&P slipping around 40 minutes ago. Uh, and uh, as I say, we are staying under pressure right now. The S&P down by nine tenths of 1%, 3354. Let's get some headlines now with Charlie Pellet. And I thank you very much, Guy Johnson. Here's what's going on. Ahead of the World Health Organization is calling for nations around the globe to boost funding to fight the coronavirus. While the outbreak is still mostly confined to China, the airline industry, meanwhile, forecasting the first annual decline in global passenger demand in 17 years. Hubei, the province at the center of the outbreak, reported a sharp drop in new cases, but another change in the way China diagnoses uh, diagnoses infections. 
infections calls into question the reliability of that data. But the organizers of the Baselworld Watch Industry Trade Fair plan to go ahead with the event as scheduled in late April. UK retail sales jumped the most in almost two years uh, in January, ending the worst run for British stores on record and adding to signs of an economic rebound after the December election created a Brexit breakthrough. Meanwhile, the Confederation of British Industries says British manufacturers are starting to become more upbeat about the outlook. It says total and export order books improved to their strongest positions in six months. Exports now in line with their long-run average. Latest from the news desk, uh, Jonathan Farrell, back to you now here in New York. Charlie Pellet, great to catch up with you. Thank you. Bit of a sell-off underway in New York. The S&P 500 down by a little more than 1%. The bond market really nicely bid. It's been firmer through the session, though. Yields are now lower by 5 6 basis points to 151 on 10s inversion three month out to 10 year negative six basis points or so the real risk that if you try and come up with a fundamental reason as to why the s&p 500 is down one percent you might be struggling for reason by the end of the day if it's back up to flat for no reason entirely and i'm really struggling guy to come up with a good reason as to why this equity market rolled over so aggressively in the last couple of hours i have no idea I'm, I'm ge- genuinely, usually I have a stab at these things, but I, I have no idea what just happened. Could be positioning, could be all kinds of different things. Um, but at the moment, I'm really struggling to find out I, what is going on. I just, just a big kind of order just going through could have just kind of turned the market around a little bit. But I'm not sure. Luke Cower has got a lot to say on these things. He joins us now from Bloomberg. I was, I was really hoping this this wasn't going to be the pivot. Like, let's let's ask Luke what the heck happened. Let's, yeah. let's ask Luke. But you've got some interesting observations as to whether this is China-related or not, because people are throwing around that story from the Global Times about infections in a Beijing hospital. Yeah, all, all I'll say on that is that if you're if you're going to use the the China excuse that you know this is not the tenor of the market pullback, uh, does not map out with how we've had prior coronavirus related pullbacks. It's not you know particularly hitting transports. It's not uh, you know, particularly hitting cyclicals. This is particularly hitting the stocks that everyone's been saying should go down for a while. This is ki- It's kind of rare to see software down this much and underperforming by this much with yields lower. This is not a thing that generally happens. So it's more kind of your good old-fashioned risk-off, uh, more, of a, uh, more of a beta move than anything that you can map on and you know, kind of have a logical explanation for. Yeah, the pure yield plays, real estate, utilities guy, top of the pile on the S&P 500. I, yeah, yes, that makes kind of perfect sense, doesn't it? I, that seems reasonably logical. My question is, I, I, at some point we are going to get a sell-off. Everybody is talking about it. Everybody I talk to is scratching their head trying to figure out what's going on. You had the Peter Oppenheimer note out uh, from Goldman Sachs a little bit earlier on. The risks of a correction are high. I, is that the tone over there as well? I, that, that's coming from Oppenheimer, who obviously is who, who's on Wall Street. But what is the view over there? Of, of these markets I just is it just a weight of money that's kept us going to these sort of levels and at what point does the market go you know what actually we're beginning to understand the impact the supply chain story is going to have and it's going to be meaningful uh, I, I'd still say you know one ten minute spree of selling has not. No, changed. no, I'm not saying this has, is yeah, it. I, I know. I'm not. I, I would just say like it. It hasn't. People's base case 
has and will remain that the coronavirus impact is temporary, that, uh, you know, you don't need to bring in full year estimates too much. You only need to bring in Q1 estimates, which is something that uh, John here has been harping on about for a few days now. So I I, I don't uh, I, no, no, I no, I've, I've, I've enjoyed it. And it's hey, it's, it's a good point, because that's that's where consensus is as it relates to what does it mean for further upside in the market? I think one narrative that's crept in a lot more lately is that, uh, you know, the value people have been getting more creative in explanations to justify an expansion just on valuation fronts, uh, you know, whether whether that's be, you know, well, we should really be looking at multiples from cash flow. We should, uh, you know, really be adjusting for this big asset shortage. U.S. has the only, you know, growth stocks in town and everybody wants them in a secular stagnation world. So I'd say, you know, that... That mindset is where you can probably see the most delta. You can probably see the biggest change or we'll see the change first uh, before you see the kind of, oh, my, the coronavirus is actually having a material and persistent impact on growth. Yeah, I made the point earlier today that to really get a bear market, to get a sizable move of 10 plus percent, I think one of two things needs to happen. Either you need to really start to question your faith in the ability and willingness of central banks to maintain loose financial conditions, one or two. You need to start to believe that the weakness in manufacturing, the resilient service sector just can't stand up to it anymore. And I think we're a few months away from making those kind of moves, don't you, Luke? I, I mean, I think like door number three, though, is is you know particularly related to tech valuations. I, yeah. I think you you can get a meaningful meaningful market move just by all the things that we're trading at you know more than eight times EV to EBITDA uh, and have gone up to twelve times coming let me, back let me to jump, eight. Let me jump in and ask the question though. But valuations themselves never can, yeah. can that can, can they fall on the weight of themselves without a catalyst? is what I'm trying to get my head around. Don't we need some kind of catalyst? Yes, everything is rich. Usually, I think you need some catalyst, but like there's, I, I would turn back to even like August 2015. It took two weeks before, you know, after the uh, shock devaluation of the yuan, before you started seeing crazy intense selling in U.S. stocks. The catalyst could well be, you know, the coronavirus as an excuse to take risk off generally, and we just react okay. to this and bring it into the picture a month after we first know about it. How many people are waiting for a dip to buy? That's a that's a good question. I would say I would say fewer just because people have become more more fully invested. Uh, one thing that uh, is kind of a mitigating factor is you you've definitely seen this month and it's something that you haven't seen really since the start of 2018. The retail bid is is very much back. So in that that that's actually become a quite meaningful force in the market. It uh you know has even been surprised me to looking at this, but both in options and flows, that's uh that might be where the, the marginal bid is right now. Big day tomorrow for Europe. Big, big day for Europe tomorrow. PMI data coming out. Uh it's likely to give us a first indication, first proper indication. Uh, of the impact that the coronavirus is having in terms of European data. Um, judging by some of the corporate commentary that we're getting at the moment, it could be quite uh, a set of uh, tough numbers. Fascinating to hear AP Muller Merce today uh, talking about the number of ships that they have had to cancel, the world's biggest container shipping line. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio.
This is the cable live across the capital on TAP Digital Radio. This is Bloomberg Radio. PMIs out from Europe tomorrow. The market has been very, very comfortable looking through weak corporate guidance for Q1. Comfortable in the belief that as the year grows older, the outlook gets better. Will investors have the same tolerance for tomorrow's PMIs? Luke Cowie, your thoughts on that important topic? I, it's been interesting because I, you know, although you focus on investors not caring too much about bad guidance as it relates to, uh, you know, the coronavirus and the near-term outlook, it's it's also been kind of the same thing the other way, right? Like domestic data stateside has meant absolutely nothing to Treasuries now for approximately three weeks. And what I wonder, and connecting this now to Europe, is that you know coming into the year, you know. Gentle bear steepener, everyone's expectations, global yields pick up, Europe getting off the mat, global reflation. I wonder if we'd be seeing like materially higher treasury yield and a much steeper U.S. curve, even if, you know, the, we had, we had had the cure for the coronavirus. We saw it didn't exist because European data at about the exact same time coronavirus fear started hitting markets, uh, just completely rolled over. So, so I, I I do think that tomorrow is a kind of good again once it's it's a good display of the asymmetry that exists in the treasury market, and it'll be you know another chance to prove that it's it's very difficult to have a steeper curve unless Europe is driving it. There seems to be this perception though that central banks are going to rescue us, and yet there's a parallel conversation that the ECB is done. Put those two things together for me. Yeah, I mean, I I think the central banks will rescue us. Narrative. I don't I don't necessarily know where it's coming from in a big way, just because it doesn't seem to map out well into what uh, central bankers are saying. In a lot of cases, central bankers are very eagerly wanting to be on hold. They're uh, in Europe. They're av- advocating for a move to fiscal. I, th- I think the mood is still so much more that whatever downside shock is coming and we're about to be seeing it just isn't sufficiently material to be a business cycle inflection point like it's it's much more a this too will pass than you know we'll get over it with some central bank stimulus is is my read of it so I far I think the most important put right now is the she put and chinese stimulus is considered a public good the chinese pay for it and the europeans benefit from it that seems to be my take at the moment, Luke, that the Europeans are just hoping that China can stabilise the situation. And if they can, Germany will be OK and Europe will continue to stumble along. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's, uh, that definitely helps explain a lot of the action you see in, in European stocks and how they've been kind of... Uh, OK, you know, let's, let's just explore that for a moment. How does Chinese policy actually meaningfully impact the ability to get people back to work? I this is agreed. This is a, yeah, agreed. It's yeah, for like it's that's that's the problem is the kind of the longer that production like legitimately production side shutdown lingers, the you know what are, what are you going to do and it also falls into the bucket of well what is the nature of Chinese stimulus that we've known and how they've been reorienting it to have limited spillovers abroad? The last, the Chinese kind of half-hearted stimulus we've seen over the past couple of years in an attempt to offset the kind of more, uh, the more financial tightening they've been doing and tampering down on deleveraging. It's, it's all been geared 
to the domestic economy with limited spillovers, a.k.a. tax cuts. And, you know, they've seen that the efficacy of those is uh, much more limited and has much less uh, visible and pronounced effects on global markets than, you know, building a bunch of cities, building a bunch of buildings out of nothing and the associated commodity demand. Well, the additional problem here as well is that if you want to fire up a factory again, do you change the preferences of consumers with some lower rates? Yep. Will they be able to come back to work? Can they ramp up production again? There's some really interesting, intricate economic questions we've got to get our hands around in the next couple of weeks. Luke, great to see you. Fantastic to catch up. So much to talk about in the world of banking. Up next, Mr. James Gorman, Morgan Stanley, sitting down and explaining why he just made the biggest acquisition for a Wall Street mega firm since the financial crisis. That's next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to The Cable. We are live on DAB Digital Radio. Morgan Stanley's share price under a little bit of pressure. A surprise uh, announcement today that the bank has agreed to buy the discount brokerage E-Trade. So what we did was we went right up to the top of uh, the bank to try and get some analysis on why this was a good decision. So we sat down with James Gorman, who's the chief executive. He spoke to Bloomberg's Sonali Basse. James, this is the biggest deal we've seen from a U.S. bank since the financial crisis. Yeah. It's certainly a big deal for Morgan Stanley. <laughs> Why was E-Trade the right deal for you as opposed to growing another part of your business like asset management? Well, firstly, uh, Shanali, thanks for coming by. It's a great day for our firm. Uh, you know, we, we've had a strategy in place for a long time to continue to diversify and build out our balance sheet like businesses. The Smith Barney transaction, of course, was historic back in 2009. Uh, Solium we did. Mesa West was a small asset management deal. I've always felt that E-Trade was an incredible brand, an incredible company, had great technology. We're clearly doing stuff on the digital side at a pace that was ahead of where we were. So we had that constant debate of sort of build versus buy. And, you know, we felt we're in the condition to make a bold move and we went for it. So why was E-Trade the right business as opposed to a newer business as well? You said digital was a big deal for you. Had you considered a Robinhood? Well, I, I kind of like E-Trade's business model. I mean, they've got, they've got a lot of clients. Uh, they've got a huge uh, workplace stock plan business. They have one of the best digital online banking businesses in the marketplace, and they sit on $600 billion of assets. So added to us, that's $3.1 trillion. You add their stock plan business to ours, we're sitting on $600 billion. We have $21 billion now in combined wealth management revenues. Takes our margins above 30%. It's not comparable. You know, Robinhood is a completely different kind of business. So I, I like real businesses, real clients, real revenues, real profits. They've got all of it. Real clients, but these are much different clients than Morgan Stanley has traditionally taken on. How does this change the fabric of Morgan Stanley? Le less than you would think, in fact, that the, meaning I don't think it changes the fabric of the company much at all. Uh, less different clients than you would think. The stock plan clients are, are frankly all corporate institutions, so that's not different at all. And for many of us having advisory relationships, also have online accounts, whether it's with our banks or with a financial you know, institution providing financial advice. So it's, it's, I think the channels in the last 20 years, my observation is the channels have come together. What you've got to do is build businesses that make your clients happy. 
right? Be convenient for them, not convenient to yourselves. And for our financial advisors, already our clients, including myself, are constantly working electronically, digitally with my financial advisors, with Morgan Stanley. So I think the channels have converged. So $13 billion, this is a pretty hefty price tag for E-Trade. What do you tell the people on Wall Street who might believe you are overpaying? I think they're jealous. <laughs> you know, that doesn't bother me at all. I mean, listen, we paid a $3 billion premium last year. We made $8 billion in revenue. So it's about four and a half months of earnings. That's one way to think about it. We just put at risk four and a half months of last year's earnings to buy an iconic institution with $600 billion of assets, $3 billion of revenues that's going to improve all of our financial multiples. This, this, is, this is a no-brainer from that perspective. And so this morning you had said to analysts that you believe that this will create a full-scale digital bank, checking, savings. Each they have it. They have it. Well, E-Trade also has 4,000 employees. Yeah. You have more than 15,000 advisors in mm. your wealth management unit. What does this mean? That's almost 20,000 people. Do you need 20,000 people to run that part of the business five years from now? Well, we actually have a lot more. Um, what you're just talking about is the, the Series 7 registered advisors, of which we have about 15,000. All of the supporting staff in the branches, the customer service reps, the ops managers, uh, the risk management and all of the technology and other support around it. It's probably a 30, 35,000 person business. No, this, this is an add-on. I mean, there are obviously some jobs which are duplicative, but most of this business just fits neatly inside Morgan Stanley and it will be run as E-Trade inside Morgan Stanley. But as the bank goes digital, does that mean that it just needs a lot fewer employees to make it happen? Oh, goodness, no. No, this is an opportunity for our clients to expand their relationship with us. They're doing their digital banking and trading with other institutions. Now they can do it all at Morgan Stanley. We think we have about $7 trillion of assets between E-Trade and Morgan Stanley that's held away. Why hold it away? We want to bring those funds in here. So you have the number one stock trading business in the world right now as well. J.P. Morgan is trying to knock at your door when it comes to that business. How does the E-Trade acquisition add to your trading business? Yeah, that's the equities business, number one in the world. We were number five post-crisis, unambiguous number one in the world. Listen, there's technology within the equities business through our electronic trading platform, something we call MSET. Uh, that I think E-Trade could be additive and vice versa. So we're excited about using some of their technology, not just in wealth management, but frankly across our, our asset management platform, as well as equities and fixed income. James Gorman speaking to Shinali Basak, Bloomberg Shinali Basak, a little bit earlier on. Stocks down 4.5%, Morgan Stanley under a little bit of pressure today. John, the deal is dilutive, so to a certain extent, given that it's an all-stock uh, all transaction, you would have expected some downside on Morgan Stanley. I just wonder if we can kind of get a sense of whether the market is is not that happy with this deal by that share price performance. Yeah, but isn't it a stark contrast to what's happening in Europe? It's just night and day. Here's a bank on Wall Street making a strategic acquisition, and in Europe we're working out who should lead a bank and what that bank should be when it grows older. It's just another world, isn't it? Yeah, and as you pointed out the other day, European banks struggling to return money to shareholders in a way that, that US banks are just, just find reasonably straightforward. If you take a step back from all of this, post-financial crisis, U.S. banks were much were meant to become much more utility-like. They were not really be a, meant to be able to be making this kind of money. I just think it's a testament to the kind of management teams that exist at some of these banks. And, and Jamie Dimon is one that stands out, that just kind of absolutely have nailed it. 
much safer and spinning off tons and tons of cash. You mentioned yep. Jamie Dimon, JP Morgan is one of those banks. Bank of America is another. Morgan Stanley is another. You'll be hard pushed to pick one in Europe right now. Things are looking tough still. Uh, more than a decade since the financial crisis. Guy, always great to catch up with you, buddy. We'll be back tomorrow to run you through some really important Eurozone PMIs on both Bloomberg TV and on Bloomberg Radio. From New York and London, you're listening to The Cable. This is Bloomberg Radio.